the Spring Stampede, the next pay-per-view. The Mexican people are praying. To see this conferno kick Conan. Kick Conan booties. From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown Estate in front of a live studio audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 84 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today I am covering a show that I never thought I would do. This is the show you never thought you would hear, and not just for the opening theme, which I think was the opening theme for WCW Saturday Night around this time, covering the WCW Saturday Night for... April the 10th, 1999, just in advance of Spring Stampede 99, one of the last pay-per-view shows that WCW did that is considered good or very good or even excellent, depending on who you listen to. I've been watching it over the last few days, and it is not a difficult one to get through. There are no promos during it. There's a brief video before the Disco Inferno Conan match, which I enjoyed because I enjoyed that feud very much, which are for reasons that I will get into later on this show because both of them will be making an appearance. And I figured, I know I've said in the past that I would never do a WCW show from after, let's say, Starcade 98, so 99 and later. But at some point, I'm going to have to go to... The places that I don't want to go to, the greasy, grimy areas, and I'm going to have to get my hands dirty and all that. So I figure I should just do this now, should just rip the damn Band-Aid off, and hope that it is a watchable show. And surprisingly enough, this actually was, and I am glad that I went through and watched this show, which was actually taped, of all things, in Kitchener, Ontario. On March 30th, 1999, shortly after that famous Nitro that was held in Toronto with the Bret Hart Goldberg angle, which I'll be getting into a little bit later in the show. But first, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter and engage and All my little witticisms that I post, not only after each show, but during the week with other wrestling that I happen to be watching. You know, if I see a funny sign on a show, I'll take a screenshot of it and probably post it. At GF Allentown Pod is the address for that one. And you are probably listening to this show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And I do encourage you to check out 
ProWrestlingOnly.com to explore the other podcasts on this network. Match reviews, features, retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games, matches, playlists, wrestler appearances, non-TV the whole Megilla, as I've said previously. You can... Join the discussion with over 2,000 registered members at ProWrestlingOnly.com, an archive of over 4 million threads. Match discussion archive, you can go into the microscope form for a deeper look at things. Wrestling's past and present examined like nowhere else. That's the all-new ProWrestlingOnly.com. Now, if you listened to my last show, you might have noticed I slipped in some big news at the very end of the program where I had mentioned that I had gotten a job offer and I am going to accept it. And it may change things with this show in a way that I'm not entirely sure yet until I actually start doing this job. I don't know what my day-to-day life is going to be like at that time. What I do know is that I'm not going to be able to work at home. For a period of time. And the advantage that I've had in my current job is I'm working 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if I'm working at home, instead of driving my hour commute to work during that hour, I could sit at the computer and record as I'm doing right now. So if I have to drive to the office every single day, I'm not going to have that opportunity necessarily. So I'd have to find other ways to kind of make up for that, perhaps, you know, be more efficient in my recording, maybe fewer tangents about baseball and so on and so forth, Uh, more efficient in taking notes as well, because sometimes I get a little too bogged down in researching things. I know in one of the matches on this show, I, I spent way too much time learning everything I could about Jerry Flynn. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure why I would even bother with something like that. But that it was something that I had to do to to change jobs because I I had kind of mentioned offhand that you know I wasn't particularly happy or thrilled in my current job. Suffice to say that training people in India to do your job, but and kind of knowing what may happen at the end of that isn't exactly the most thrilling experience to go to five days a week but looking for a job it especially I don't know if it's always been this way because you know I graduated from college 2001 everything is kind of gone online I don't know what it was like looking for a job in 1983 but god this was a long and painful process where I send in resumes applications to like 300 different places And out of all that, I want to say I had about five or six interviews tops. And I had a long dry spell in the summer where, in fact, I didn't have anything from the end of May until this interview that led to this current gig. So that's a period of about four months where really nothing was happening. I revamped my resume. You send stuff in. You try to follow up, but there's like no necessarily no contact to go to so it's not something i'm glad that it's over i it's kind of weird because it's not a place without naming names i mean you know finding out where i work right now is probably not all that difficult if you really wanted to know but i always thought i would end up 
in a different area of the financial world than where I am. I'm kind of in the same type of company, except maybe one that's considered a better company going forward. But I am excited. It's going to be a new challenge, a new opportunity. And uh, hopefully it doesn't impact this show because as you're listening to it, uh, you obviously enjoy this show enough to listen to me flap my gums once a week on Thursdays or whenever it is that you're listening. And I enjoy doing this show. At times, it's been very therapeutic. There have also been times where I've just really got burned out. Not as much recently because I just have gotten into the flow of how to record the show. I, I often get asked, how, how do you do this show by yourself it the answer is i don't really know when i think about it because as i record this right now it is a sunday night it is 10 58 p.m my wife is on assignment down in new york and has to work in connecticut tomorrow so in this house by myself and i'm just kind of talking to the air staring at my notebook but i don't really take notes for this part of the show. And I've spent much of my weekend watching 1999 WCW because, like I always say, I am clearly a man who finds his time valuable and I'm not going to waste it on stupid nonsense. And But speak, okay, that's a, that's a good segue into the actual wrestling part of this program because the ridiculousness of WCW in 1999 you say just 1999 WCW and this image in my head of everything going to crap and there there was a certain level of it a lot of it was more late in the year but there was certainly plenty of it at the beginning of 1999 starting with the July 4th the infamous Nitro and the finger poke of doom Goldberg and the sexual assault charge, excuse me, stalking charge, because they were very careful to not have Goldberg be considered some sort of rapist or something, because, you know, he he might want to be nominated to Supreme Court at some point. By the way, I think Elizabeth was far less convincing on that one Nitro than the women who have come forward against this Kavanaugh guy. He also had other stuff. I mean, anything ridiculous in WCW can always be traced back to Ric Flair. I'd say about 38% of all the stupid stuff they did directly involved the Nature Boy. He's beat, beat up and left in a field. And you're not entirely sure how he ends up getting back. Some dude on a turnip truck or something like that. You get lots and lots and lots, copious amounts of Stevie Ray from Harlem Heat who's getting the mysterious push. And then you have the other WCW mistake of, we, we got to turn Ric Flair heel because, God forbid, we ever you know allow the fans to really just cheer this guy, whether it's the promotion's decision or Ric Flair's decision of, I have to be a heel because this is what I want to you know live my life as on the road. Of course, that leads right into David Flair, which, you know, granted, some of the summer matches that he had are certainly memorable, like the one against El Dandy with the drop toe hold where he pauses 
<laughs> it's it's like he's a it's like he's an old internet connection who's buffering like do, going down for the drop toehold. That whole thing he made he made Eric Watts look like Masawa for God's sakes. And then finally, and this for me might be the most ridiculous WCW thing, and it's kind of innocuous because I don't think it killed the promotion per se or, or anything like that. But it, I remember it just really bugged me at the time. And that was when they changed the logo from the classic sort of block WCW thing that had been in place for years, I mean, almost a decade at that point. And they went to this thing that I call it the Super Bowl Twenty logo. And I used to say this in college too, but no, nobody knew what the hell I was talking about because who the hell cared about Super Bowl Twenty unless you were from New England and we were hoping maybe to forget it or from Chicago because that's the one Super Bowl that the Chicago Bears had ever won or were ever even in, at least up to that time. But I knew the logo from Super Bowl Twenty, And seeing this new WCW logo, the star logo, as it was known. And that actually was unveiled the week that this show aired. It was brought out for the April 5th Nitro. And in the classic WCW fashion, there, there's always something with anything that they try to do. And this logo rollout was no exception. And this is courtesy of WhatCulture.com, reminding me of this little incident in the rollout of their new new branding with a USA Today advertisement. WCW wanted to advertise the fact that the April 5th, 1999 Nitro would be a somewhat of a rebirth for the program and for the company as a whole. Typical called WCW fashion, however, the ad was inconclusive. Not even the most ardent of wrestling fans could have known it was about WCW. The new logo was shown but there was no mention of WCW. Instead, the advert simply encouraged fans to tune into TNT at 7 p.m. on April 5. It had quite a baffling choice of slogan to accompany that text. Overlapping the actual WCW logo looks like something a bird left on the hood of my car was written in plain white text, completely undermining the new choice of logo and destroying credibility right out of the gate. Usually the issue people take with that logo is that you can't really tell that it actually says WCW because the letters are not exactly clear. But for me, it was different because I had a Super Bowl twenty pennant in my room as a kid. So I would see that logo literally every single day. Now, WCW's ratings were still okay at this time. It's not like they fell completely off a cliff. And this is, I've said this in the past, but it bears repeating because it's its a lesson that I don't know has been learned over time. And it's that ratings and money and the ability to draw money, I think, are lagging indicators. Things don't move that quickly where if you do something, oh, all of a sudden the rating is going to go up the next week. It takes a little bit of time. For things to take hold and catch on like Steve Austin in 1997 is gradually bringing people in but you're not going to see them really spike until 1998 now Mike Tyson certainly I think had an impact in that in that whole angle 
But Eric Bischoff, the way he was running things was so insane where he would put all of his chips like a, like a terrible poker player to the center of the table to bank on these one-week victories that ultimately would mean nothing because you get to the next week and what are you going to do? In many ways, Bischoff kind of reminds me of Pete Rose when Pete Rose was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds because... But by the way, one of those guys is in the WWE Hall of Fame. <laughs> Try and guess which one. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So when Pete Rose got busted for gambling on baseball, a lot of his defenders said, well, he bet on his own team. That's that, that's fine. Well, what happens in the games where Pete Rose doesn't bet on his own team? He manages differently, right? So Bischoff, he's banking everything at these various points. Not just Goldberg Hogan in the Georgia Dome, but there were so many examples. To, it was like he was trying to do like a get-rich-quick scheme every time he would do something like that. Until you get to the middle of 1999, where he pretty much just gave up and walked away and took an extended vacation. And by vacation, I mean hanging out in Hollywood trying to get another gig, which I can't say I blame him for because I just spent five minutes talking about my efforts to get another gig that is, you know, make me happy or all that. I don't think I would be happy running WCW with some of the egos that are involved. Although I can tell you one thing in terms of looking back at how the company went in 98 and 99, I would have taken a long look at it, and I would have eventually said to Hogan, I don't know how much money that they owed him on a guarantee, but I wouldn't have brought him back because I think he was more trouble than he was worth because I don't think he was going to be bringing any more new eyeballs to the product. So that's my piece on WCW into 1999 but believe it or not this show because it's wcw saturday night it kind of operates in a different universe i think than nitro and thunder did because this is the clear c show and you know there's not as much pressure for everything to be good you're not head-to-head against any wwf show going on at the same time so you can kind of just have a normal wrestling program and this is a one hour edition of wcw saturday night which is why i caught my eye and why i'm doing the show and on this program we're going to see some actual name matches here rick steiner is taking on finley which is a rematch of an earlier bout between the two. Ernest Cat Miller will be taking on Norman Smiley, who was certainly taking hold of WCW and starting to get some reactions. We have an interaction with Conan, and Juventud Guerrero gets himself involved as well. And our feature bout is a tag match that sounds like it almost sounds like a battle bowl match because it seems like the teams are scrambled and that two of the guys who are on opposing sides, you feel like they should be on the same side. It is Haku teaming with Jerry Flynn to take on Haku's former Faces of Fear partner, the Barbarian, and Hugh Morris. Our hosts for WCW Saturday Night are Mike Tenay and Scott Hudson. So this is my first show that I will have done with Scott Hudson. I think Mike Tenay as well because I don't think he has done any of the WCW Worldwide shows. So with all that in mind, why don't we just jump right into the show with my continuing series since this is episode 84, 
the biggest sports moment of the year 1984. Nearly a steal by Worthy. Dennis Johnson with Cooper all over him. He can't do a thing. Burr turnaround hits with 16 seconds to go. And the Lakers call their last, although they have one more, they call a timeout. And the Celtics are just about as happy as we have seen them in this series so far. They have the lead, and why not? Ten seconds in overtime. Worthy stolen by Emil Carr. And the Boston Celtics have opened up a five-point lead with five seconds to go. <laughs> that is from game four of the 1984 nba finals the best game in what is probably the best nba finals that has ever been played i mean just look at the rosters of those two teams it's incredible there's just hall of famers galore on both sides and that game was a particular war you got Bird hitting the fadeaway jumper over Magic with you know about 15 seconds to go, and then ML Carr of all people with the steal. Although actually he did lead the league in steals at one point. I think it was the 79-80 season that he did that. But that was also the game where Kevin McHale famously clotheslined Kurt Rambis because Larry Bird maybe a little misogynistic, saying they played like a bunch of women or a bunch of sissies or something like that after Game 3 because the Celtics had got blown out in Game 3. So that win in Game 4 really turned the tide, even the series at 2 going back to Boston because that was the last year that they had the 2-2-1-1-1 and then they changed the next year to the 2-3-2 which they kept until about 4 or 5 years ago. The NBA finally decided that it was better to go back to the 2-2-1-1-1. My theory on that was that they kept the 2-3-2 for so long, not because of travel, but because by having the team that didn't have home court with three home games in the middle, you were much more likely to get a series extended out to a minimum of six games, which is good for the television partners and good for exposure of the league, which uh, it's probably a bunch of you know crap, but think about those Chicago Bulls teams Five out of their six victories in the 90s all played in a 2-3-2. Five of them went to six games. They never had to play a seventh game, but five out of the six times they did have to go to six games. But yeah, Celtics-Lakers, always a go-to for me watching that stuff on YouTube and all that. When I was sick and when I got out of the emergency room, the next day when I came home and I felt a little better and I wasn't sitting in bed, I, I... pulled up some Larry Bird highlights because that's usually just therapeutic for my soul. So for our opening match, we have Rick Steiner taking on Fit Finley, who doesn't seem to be at the same level he was about a year earlier. And that was the last time I addressed the native of Belfast on this show, episode 16, which was actually my debut episode on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. That was when he was wearing the bizarre half Legion of Doom shoulder pad thing and then half the studded demolition thing like he was some dude who couldn't make up his mind and I think I don't know if I said that he should have painted his face like the warlord just to really confuse people as to what late 80s face paint tag team was his favorite but 
Anyway, you got Rick Steiner on the other side. He had been going so, through some changes in the previous year. He's separated out from Scott, which I believe took place Super Brawl 8. So that's 14 months in the rear view. It's over a year. And this is before the obnoxious Rick Steiner phase later in 99 where he plays that bully character that uh, honestly just really kind of made me want to change the channel not the best look for rick steiner but who figured thinking back to the late 80s in the gimmick that he had where he always came off as kind of dumb which sometimes maybe we'd assume that it's the character is the guy turned up to 11 but who would have thought that rick would have become the normal one quote unquote out of the two Steiner brothers because eventually he would go on and become a real estate agent in Georgia because Scott, he gets all the attention because he owns a Shoney's in Ackworth, Georgia. But I'm here to tell you that Rick Steiner, he, you know, he's, he's open for business. I'm looking at some of his real estate listings, which is at callricksteiner.com. And, you know, I'm, I want to read one of them here. There's there's a house in Canton, Georgia at 701 Pittman Lane, which I don't know if that means Sergeant Craig Pittman was the developer on that one and named the street after himself. But I am kind of interested in this house because it's listed for $320,000. I don't know all the details of the Atlanta real estate market or even how close to Atlanta Canton, Georgia is. But he did host an open house, actually, as I taped this, earlier today on Sunday, September 30th from 2 to 4 p.m. So, as I said, $320,000, Canton, Georgia, four-bedroom, three full bathrooms. This house was built in 2004, so it's only 14 years old, but it's probably still got the original roof, eat-in kitchen, in-law suite, dining room seats 12-plus for Thanksgiving, the base, uh, basement appears to be finished, and you only owe $2,764 in taxes per year. That is information from 2016. This house is ready to move in. Beautiful grand entry with wide stairway leading to a huge family room with vaulted ceiling and stone fireplace. Oh, that's nice. Large eat-in kitchen with granite and stainless appliances. Den on lower level with separate exterior entrance. Perfect or games room or teen in-law suite. Full bath and laundry room on the lower level. Amazing driveway takes to your country living oasis. Four acres of partial wooded lot with level yard area ready for pets and kids. Just minutes from shopping in downtown Canton. Short drive to I-575. Jeez, maybe I should move to Atlanta. I don't know. I I never quite considered that. I mean, one of my friends, he, he works for a law firm down there. He's a hotshot lawyer maybe i maybe i should look all right since i just got a new job maybe i shouldn't be thinking about other stuff but yeah so if you ever want to meet rick steiner just go to one of his open houses that seems to be the easiest way think about this because scott hudson does mention i mean these two guys and it didn't really hit me until hudson said that this could be one hell of a hoss fight these two men two of the roughest toughest guys in wcw just don't like each other these two had actually battled on saturday night the week before and then a nitro before that and finley had gotten dq'd in the previous match so they really hadn't settled things you'd think maybe you would build to a pay-per-view match where you have 
the big blow-off, but here we are on WCW Saturday night because, as I said, it kind of operates in its own universe. Steiner line early as Rick takes control as Mike Tanay, as they are wont to do in WCW, where they would often just talk about other stuff. They're talking not about Spring Stampede, which is the next day, but with eyes towards Slamboree in May, which was going to be held in St. Louis. And he, Tanay talks about Ric Flair doing an appearance and highlights on ESPN where he threw out the first pitch at a St. Louis Cardinals-Milwaukee Brewers game. So I was very interested in that. Very early season game. They're coming off Mark McGuire's big 1998 season. Although the Cardinals in those years were actually not all that great. I think they went 75-86 and 86 in the 99 season. And McGuire, I know he hit over 60 home runs for the second consecutive year. And the Cardinals won that game over the Brewers 9-4. to But it was Fernando Tatis, the star, with a home run, two RBI, and two stolen bases. So Ric Flair, not only on ESPN these days, although certainly WCW did not leverage him in the mainstream as well as they could have. In fact, whenever WCW would get mainstream attention, they they would never use it in the correct way. Sometimes they just wouldn't run video of whatever. There's actually going to be an example, I think, of that later in the show. Finley does regain control, and as as he works Steiner over, I'm looking at Finley, and I have this kind of odd thought. I, I thought, he looks like a fun guy to play golf with. Now, I have no idea if he actually does play golf, and I haven't played a proper 18 holes of golf on a regulation course since 2003. Like, I've done par threes since then, and I think I might have done like a nine hole or something like that, but I feel like Finley's the type of guy who might screw around with a golf cart or something like that. I could picture him like pulling out like a giant cigar and, and smoking a stogie as you walk the course. And he's locking in this chin lock, and that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about playing golf with Finley. Rick is sent to the outside, and and the hammer lock is applied to send a shoulder to the post. Because Rick had a shoulder injury in 1998. He kind of no-sells it a little bit, though. And he fights back. He sends Finley to the guardrail. And back inside, Fit actually misses on a charge, and his shoulder goes into the ring post. And I'm trying to think of a name for that move because you have the S.D. Jones memorial charge, but when you have the guy who goes headfirst into the corner and hits his shoulder on the ring post, I think that should be the Warlord memorial charge because that was something that he would incorporate in a lot of his matches. I know it's in that 88 Survivor Series match that I love so much. They go back outside again because this match is going all over the place. It's a heated Heated feud in the WCW Saturday Night Universe. And Fit is actually slammed throat first onto the guardrail. So that's more of a Brian Pillman spot. We can call that the Pillman Memorial spot. DDT by Rick back inside in an elbow. But that only gets two. Then Steiner goes up to the top rope and hits a 
what I have to admit is a horrible looking bulldog. I mean, neither one of these guys is bad professional or bad professional wrestlers, but sometimes things happen and it doesn't look as good as it should. And I'm willing to accept it because this is the C show. I'm not expecting world class, you know, wrestling here. I'm not talking about the Texas kind, but my God, it was such a bit. He didn't catch him right, but. Hey, it was better that it happened that way than, let's say, the Buff Bagwell incident of the year before. This is actually an alright TV match. I do wonder why you don't throw this on the pay-per-view and just turn them loose on the Spring Stampede show. Although that show was plenty full. I mean, they they just went match, 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 match. But maybe it's because... You know, I've seen Finley in environments, the match with Regal in 96, where they just went at it as hard as they possibly could, all the way up to a dozen years later, his match with JBL at WrestleMania 24, that, honest to God, I actually enjoyed a JBL match. I couldn't believe it myself. And see... I've actually seen stuff from after 2003 and before the last couple of years. So, I learned something. Following man will meet for the WCW World Heavyweight title in a four-corners match. Ric Flair, Diamond Dallas Page, Hollywood Hogan, and the man they call Sting. The rules are simple. The man that gets the pitfall becomes the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. And last but not least, there will be a winner. And I referee. Savage left one item of interest for the Spring Stampede main event out of his promo for it. Yes, he did referee the match, but it was the debut of the very busty and vivacious, gorgeous George, Stephanie Bellers, which I did not realize that that, they just rolled her out on the pay-per-view, and it led to kind of a hilarious moment on the broadcast, at least to me, because I'm reading into it, where, you know, they're gawking over her as she's walking to the rig with him, and then Tony's like, we, we understand her name is Gorgeous George, like, clearly the producer is feeding the name to them, so, okay, fine, and then she hangs out at ringside for the entire match for what whatever, whatever reason, in a four-corners match between four people that she has nothing to do with. Flair is defending the WCW title against Sting, Hulk Hogan, and Diamond Dallas Page. So there's a lot of star power there. DDP, obviously, I think a cut below those other guys because he's only been the big star in WCW since the Savage Feud a couple of years before. But there's something wrong with that match. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was a little bit disjointed, and not just because Hogan goes to the back with the knee injury in the middle of the match. That was fine, because then that brings it down to a three-way match. I think part of it was that they were all inexperienced with a four-person tornado match. I guess, though, at least they could pair off. Hogan was paired off with Flair. DDP was paired off with Sting. So you always had something going on instead of that WWE trope, and probably more of a pro wrestling trope with triple threat three-man matches where one person takes a nap outside the ring because they don't know how to incorporate three people at the same time when they did in that match ddp would kind of hang out in the corner a la jake roberts at the 92 royal rumble just kind of waiting to pick his spot 
But that, that match wasn't particularly great. DDP ends up winning the title, which may not have been the greatest choice in the world because his star had faded a bit from 97 and 98. He goes into that Jersey triad business with Bigelow and Canyon later in the year. And Flair losing the title to him clean via the Diamond Cutter, that's all well and good. But actually, I'm just glad that we never got like that big one-on-one match between Flair and DDP, at least to my knowledge, because that does not seem like a match that would work with DDP, you know, kind of being, you know, an older guy in the ring, and he's got, I don't want to call it a styles clash, but Ric Flair has his own way of doing things, and DDP would do things in his own way. Who knows? Maybe maybe they could have had a good match. Goes right into an ad for WCW NWO Thunder for the PlayStation 1. And as it is on the PlayStation 1, that means I, I never played it. I recall having an opportunity to buy a PlayStation way back when. I don't know if it was 98 or 99. I was up at a mall in New Hampshire where there's no sales tax. So that would actually make a difference for a purchase like that. And I just decided not to pull the trigger. And I didn't buy a... <laughs> game console again until the Sega Dreamcast in 2001 and then it was discontinued like six days later. So they go to Okerlund who's in the locker room set. He is not in a control center so different kind of setting for this sort of thing as he runs down the Spring Stampede card. I was holding my breath waiting for a WCW hotline plug but that was not to be here. But the good thing about Spring Stampede is they actually provided the card, what it was going to be, and then they delivered on it with Rey Mysterio Jr. against Billy Kidman, which was a matchup of the two members of the WCW World Tag Team Champions. So they're kind of doing that thing, although they kind of ended up the champions by accident due to the war ongoing between the Benoit Malenko team and the Raven Saturn team. Disco Inferno versus Conan. There'll be more on that later. The Four Corners match that Savage promoted. And finally, the rematch between Goldberg and Kevin Nash dating back to Starcade 98. And isn't that just so classic Kevin Nash that he gets the win at Starcade? where he breaks the streak and all that. And he's given credit for jobbing cleanly in the Spring Stampede match, but who the hell cares? You you got the win on the major show, and then you're going to lose on this, like, kind of... This is not one of the major pay-per-views, although there were a couple of Spring Stampedes over the years that were really, really good. It's just that it's like a WCW version of an in-your-house Nobody talks about Kevin Nash losing to Goldberg at Spring Stampede 99. The damage had already been done. But they don't run down the entire car. I, I like how Okerlund uh, throws this in. Plus Goldberg and Nash tag team action and all kinds of action tomorrow night at 8 o'clock for Spring Stampede. There actually was one tag team match on Spring Stampede. And that was the aforementioned Saturn and Raven taking on Dean Malenko and Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Famer Chris Benoit. So I think that perhaps Okerlund, knowing that Benoit would become a murderous maniac down the road and they would want to scrub him from all programming, 
he avoided using that name in order to keep it kosher. Of course, what he assumed was that WCW Saturday Night would be on a streaming service like a WWE network by now, but hey, he's not going to get everything right. Call now on the hotline for more. Did Bret Hart win the lottery? Did you see how he put the boot to WCW in Toronto? He must have. In Toronto, Bret the Hitman Hart turned his back and quit on World Championship Wrestling. Well, it was only 48 hours ago on NBC's later program that Bret Hart put salt in the wound of WCW. But right now, let's go back to Toronto and Nitro and Bret Hart. Of course, they don't even show any footage from later, the third NBC late night show because you had tonight's show with Leno at 11.30 then you had Conan at 12.30 and then you had later which I think was still hosted by Bob Costas at that point maybe he had given it up it's completely irrelevant because they like I said they don't show the footage so they go back to the Toronto Nitro which was 12 days before this Saturday night aired but it was kind of a big event and Brett being Brett he's always got to be a little different where he refers to Bill Goldberg as, quote, William Goldberg. And I looked it up. William Goldberg is a diamond dealer from New York City, so you think he would be more associated with Diamond Dallas Page. In spite of all that, I'm liking Brett's attire, because he's wearing a hockey jersey. Back when you can do that, before Kevin Smith ruined it for everybody going forward by just constantly wearing that thing that Kevin Smith would always wear that would kind of look like a hockey jersey, But it was close enough so that, you know, I can't wear any of the probably 12 hockey jerseys I have out in public unless I'm going to a game. That's fine. Brett's wearing the jersey of the Calgary Hitmen, which is a team that he used to own. He sold it in 1997. There were a number of issues with the coach getting busted for molesting players from way back. But I I don't want to open that Pandora's box, but... That 1999 Calgary Hitmen team is actually one of the strongest junior teams that year. And they went to the Memorial Cup where they lost. That's kind of like the Super Bowl of Junior A hockey in Canada. And they lost 7-6 to to the Ottawa 67s. That took place on May 23rd, 1999. So if that date rings a bell, certainly there were other things that would be going on in Bret Hart's life in Kansas City, Missouri, that were going to change things for a while. That Calgary Hitmen team was kind of like WCW in a certain way, in that they had three really big prospects playing for them, and all of them disappointed to varying degrees when they got to the NHL, although they were actually, all three of them were traded for bigger stars, and two of those guys kind of disappointed for their own teams. Brad Stewart was a defenseman. He was drafted third overall in 1998. Eventually, he's part of the trade by the San Jose Sharks going to the Bruins for Joe Thornton. And then there's Pavel Brendel, who was their leading scorer, hot shot drafted by the New York Rangers in 1999, fourth overall. He never even played a game for the Rangers and only played 77 games in the NHL. He was eventually traded for a kind of past his peak Eric Lindros before the 2001-2002 season. And finally, Chris Beach, who was drafted by the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I think he was a high pick. He might have been lower in the first round. Eventually, he becomes the centerpiece in the Washington Capitals trade for Yarmir Yager in the summer of 2001. 
but none of them really amounted to a whole lot on the pro level. Stewart had the longest career, but given what they thought the kind of defenseman that he was going to become, he never quite got there. And I see this as kind of like WCW, because you look at the talent roster and you say, how can this promotion possibly fail with the star power? You have a guy like Goldberg who's sitting there that you can promote, but hey, this is WCW. Everything's going to get screwed up. So they cut to later, after he calls out Goldberg, and I think Brett had been watching Back to the Future or something because he calls Goldberg a chicken. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but there's another reason why I think Brett might have been watching Back to the Future. And they cut to Goldberg. He's there in the ring, and now Brett has removed his Calgary Hitman jersey, and because they're in Toronto, he is wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey that's actually got a name and number on it. It's number 28, Ty Domi, who... It's kind of a enforcer type and a bit of a cheap shot artist. He once sucker punched star Devils defenseman Scott Niedermeyer during a playoff game. I forget how much he got suspended for that, but you got to work hard to get suspended during the playoffs. And that jersey had a sweet Maple Leaf Gardens patch, which you know people know that as the wrestling venue. Of course, is the home of the Toronto Maple Leafs right up to around that point in 1999. So he's got that loose fitting. Toronto Maple Leafs, the white jersey, got to give him credit because usually people wear the dark jersey, and I'm a fan, if you can have the white jersey on and it looks good, that that's fine. And you've, you've seen this video, Goldberg kind of attacks him and goes for the spear and they both land there and it looks like they are both dead. However, as I said, Brett had been watching Back to the Future, so he had kind of figured things out. And he had something on underneath. Whoa! He nailed him! He nailed him! Wait a minute. What happened here? Bret Hart is... is, Bret Hart is down and out! Close Goldberg. He rolls Goldberg over. He's going to try to pin one. But that's not the referee counting, and this doesn't count. Oh! Oh. How about that? Then go ahead and respect that. Hey, Bischoff! And the WCW, I quit. But, Brett, remember all the things we talked about with, like, the angles and stuff for the future? Well, I figured, what the hell? That's terrific, Brett. I don't know where you got the metal plate for your stomach, but I don't want to ask too many questions. I know you got some pull in Canada. In reality, Brett had an injury. And for those with a good memory for Brett saying certain things, you could even remember him talking about it in a more famous promo. Let's let's get some. Okay, how about Dean Malenko? I was going to give him a title shot. He was the big man who wanted to injure me. Hey, come injure me now, you little punk. He's sitting at home with some kind of hokey injury. This is a real injury, Dean Malenko. This is like groin pull the likes you've never seen in your whole life. Okay, so we're going to remove Brett from the equation because he is legitimately hurt. But what did this angle actually serve at the end of the day? You had Eric Bischoff inserting Goldberg chants into this whole scene like a complete moron because they're in Toronto 
And they are not going to turn on Bret Hart and start chanting Goldberg. So when you do that, you're really insulting the audience in the same way that I felt insulted at the 92 Royal Rumble when they changed the commentary in the aftermath because they didn't get the response that they wanted. You should have known that they weren't going to boo Bret Hart and cheer Goldberg in Toronto. The problem with the whole scene is that you could never really count on anything for any sort of follow-up, which is part of my issue with WWE, some of its booking in recent years. So I'm here to propose an alternative. I mean, yeah, it was a nice visual with the steel plate and all that, but why don't you have Brett in a tag match where you get him injured somehow and then you actually get heat on a heel that way in Canada, so that when you come back to Canada, you can have the big match at that point. But they never got that country right. I remember when when Montreal happened in 1997, the first reaction that I thought of was, oh my god, the WWF just completely gave away all of Canada, where they were red hot for much of 1997. Of course, I had assumed that everybody was going to follow Brett, and they did, except for Owen, for various reasons but they just could never get it right in Canada because they never took what they had seriously they never said okay we have this asset where we can go north of the border and basically take that away from the WWF because Bischoff always had his eye on whatever the rating would be for the next Monday's Nitro it was a silly assumption on my part looking back because That was the thing that I always thought was going to happen, but they just didn't care because they were always focused on the wrong thing. So, Chipper, how do you hit Randy Johnson? Well, I don't know. I'm 0 for 4 against him last time with three strikeouts. I've only made contact once. There's no day at the beach facing no Randy. That was pretty tough. (laughs) You know, he's just big. A guy like Randy Johnson, it's pretty much luck you have to break up his concentration somehow or another and getting on and creating things and stuff like that you got to be aggressive because he will eat you alive diamondbacks at three 705 eastern tonight on the superstation there's a very limited number of commercials that aired on this show and that for the braves game that was preempting the second hour of wcw saturday night which i'm cool with them cutting an hour off 1999 wcw that's fine especially if they're going to promote baseball and give me a reason to talk about what happened in that game because they mentioned Randy Johnson and he actually did pitch in that game this is very early season so you could kind of tell how things were going to be aligned I did a quick fact check on what Chipper Jones did the previous year against Randy Johnson and he actually did strike out three times when Johnson was on that amazing run with the Houston Astros after the 1998 trade deadline when he got traded from Seattle. And with the big unit, I've always kind of wondered with him, and when I ask this question, I'm going to rule out the NBA because one player can make such a huge difference. I mean, just think of LeBron James being in the finals with whatever his team was for the last eight years straight. Most consequential free agent signing in the history of sports. And I'm talking transformative figures who went into a situation that was less than ideal. So I'm not talking about Reggie Jackson signing with a Yankees team that had already just gone to the World Series. That's not what I mean. 
I'm not talking about David Ortiz signing a one-year deal for like $1.4 million in 2003 with the Red Sox. That was kind of like a lottery ticket that paid off. I'm talking big-ticket guys who went into a situation where a franchise was down and then lifted that team up and eventually led them to a championship. And Randy Johnson did that in 2001, winning three games in that World Series and coming in in relief in the memorable Game 7 of that series against the Yankees. The other two guys that I think of were both free agents in the summer of 2006. Drew Brees, who left the San Diego Chargers because they had Phillip Rivers and Brees also had a bit of a shoulder injury, signs with the New Orleans Saints, leads him to the Super Bowl four years later. And the reason why he was available was the fact that he had had a shoulder injury as well, also with the Philip Rivers thing, kind of you know booting him out, going with the younger guy. And Zidane Chara signing with my Boston Bruins on July 1st, 2006, comes into a situation where the Bruins were pretty terrible the year before, and he gets the captaincy right away. And it took five years, but eventually he would lead them to the Stanley Cup as probably the best defensive defenseman in hockey at that time. All transformative figures. And again, I don't count somebody like a Greg Maddox signing with the Braves because the Braves had gone to the World Series the previous two years. So that really doesn't count. So you're wondering, who won that Diamondbacks versus Braves game that night? Well, if Randy Johnson was pitching, you could probably safe to bet on them, even if Tom Glavin was pitching for the Braves. And the big unit had 15 strikeouts in a complete game, 8-3 to win for the Diamondbacks. But Chipper Jones did hit a home run in the sixth inning off Randy Johnson to make it 5-3. to So there you have it. There's an ad for the Hardy's racing team. And the guy driving the car was Mark Martin. It's one of the NASCAR guys that I actually remember quite well. But I remember him more for driving the Miller Lite number two car. Uh, I don't remember him driving a Hardy's. But uh, guys changing sponsors in NASCAR, uh, it doesn't seem to happen a lot for big names like that. I don't know enough about it to really comment further, but... You, I'm surprised you don't see maybe more poaching of of guys in that in that sport, but it's been off my radar for a number of years. And then add for Armorall Car Wax. So then we go into another promo for the Goldberg versus Nash match at Spring Stampede, the long-awaited rematch of Starcade. And I thought apparently. Goldberg had picked Nash because they showed him walking around with a giant bingo hopper like he was going to pick his opponent. But apparently, Nash came to the ring and inserted himself and said, I am your opponent. And Kevin Nash, he's wearing a Detroit Red Wings jersey too. I mean, there's hockey jerseys just all over this show. It's very original six, uh, <laughs> very much an original six theme for the jerseys being worn. But Nash, when he confronts Goldberg, and Kevin Nash, he's he's so precious. I mean, God. <laughs> what can you really say? He he makes a 100% true statement. I've been doing this for 10 years. 10 years from now, you know what people will be saying? They won't be talking about Goldberg. They'll be talking about Nash because I'm the guy that stopped your streak. 
That is true. I mean, little did he know that it would be part of an examination of, you know, the demise of WCW. But by 2009, which would be 10 years later, people were probably talking more about Goldberg the goalie from the Mighty Ducks than they were talking about Bill Goldberg because he had been gone from WWE for a good five years at that point. So then they go into another ad. And you got the Bashing Brawlers, which was the WCW version of the wrestling buddies that the WWF had earlier in the 90s, except they could talk. Now, I don't remember, the, and I was older, so I, I would have had no need for any of these. It would have been a little weird if I had these in college. <laughs> it would have made me a, even more of an outcast, I think. And an ad for Slim Jims, because Randy Savage is there, and he wants to remind you to snap into it and all that. And then an ad for America Online 4.0. I can't differentiate between what AOL 2.0, 2.5, 3.0, what all of them were. But in 1999, they were still going fairly strong. And can't really be understated how important I consider America Online to be in terms of introducing America to the Internet in kind of an organized fashion. It was kind of like a pre-planned village, like you would build in SimCity, but just for the internet and presented in a way that people could understand because, yeah, you could sign up for Juno and stuff like that and kind of do internet access the way it is now. But America, we didn't know how to do this. So we needed something to kind of introduce it to us you know, it wasn't all go to a website. It was type in keyword WWF as you you know hear on that programming. And then one final commercial for the Super Soaker. And all, all I can think is there was a story years ago about some kids in my area who put bleach in their Super Soaker and shot it at school buses. That's that's kind of a dick move, even if you're like ten years old. I have to admit. Twenty-two years ago this week, that yourself or someone like you by Matchbox Twenty, that album was released back in '96. Amazing how the singles were still going strong in '99. Although a more appropriate song to play before these next two guys might be Push, because they were in the midst of a mild push for both guys. As we have Norman Smiley taking on Ernest the Cat Miller, who has Sonny Ono. At his side, and as Smiley comes out, he gets a bit of a pop. And there's a kid holding a sign for Norman Smiley, but there's a freaking kid who's got his head in the way of like at least two letters on the sign, so you could never read the entire thing. I had posted this on Twitter within the last week. And then they cut to guys further back in the crowd in Kitchener, Ontario who have painted their chests a la that Seinfeld episode where Jerry and Kramer get to go to the Devils game, but they have to paint their chest with, like, the V and the I or the E and the V or whatever it was. <laughs> this is not my face. And they're doing that for Norman Smiley, a guy who's, you know, much further down the card in WCW in 1999. But sometimes when you're watching a promotion where things are a little askew, you have to find things to look for and, you know, to enjoy and Norman is wearing wrestling shoes, and I don't know why I've ever really noticed that 
in in the past. I think it's because Norman's one of those non knee pads guys, which by 1999 just kind of bothered me, and I know it probably bothers a lot of you as well. And I didn't know at the time. I just knew him as kind of the, the goofy looking guy who was doing the wiggle, the big wiggle, and all that. That he was a huge star in Mexico years before this as Black Magic, like a legitimate top guy down there. Now, Ernest the Cat Miller, on the other side, was going for a James Brown sort of motif. And that's fine as a character that he's developing. When you think of James Brown and WCW, you think of that unannounced appearance he made at a pay-per-view where they (laughs) gave him a truckload of money to appear unannounced at, I think it was Super Brawl 2000. It's like, why do you spend money on something like a James Brown appearance, and you don't even promote it. It's quintessential WCW, and it's a sort of sound-alike for the song Sex Machine by James Brown. They talk about some controversy about the big wiggle that Norman Smiley would do, which was effectively... Now, how can I delicately put this? He was doing a sort of thing like a man would do when he is mounting a woman from behind and it's called the freak spank it's in the sugar hill gang song (laughs) rapper's delight so fine it's not the same wiggle that antoine walker the basketball player would do after he would hit a big shot where he'd kind of shimmy his chest I'll never forget the time he did that in Michael Jordan's face back in 97 when the Celtics actually beat the Bulls. It's one of the ballsiest things I've ever seen in my life. So these are perfectly fine characters, both of them. But ultimately, it's not going to lead a whole lot of places. They're going to run up against the glass ceiling of WCW. I don't think it's necessarily because of the color of their skin, but not 100% anyway. It's just that... Even if these were two white dudes, they were still going to run into something on the way up. These were not going to be top-of-the-card guys. And also, sometimes a silly gimmick like this, you're going to be limited as well. Norman would turn into just a unlikely hardcore hero where he would wear all sorts of equipment for those matches during the ill-fated WCW hardcore division phase. Miller became a professional wrestler apparently because he was a three-time karate champion and all that and he was eric bischoff's son and i'm assuming that's garrett bischoff he was his karate instructor and that's how he got eric bischoff's attention or bischoff got his attention through all that by 2008 miller actually would take a turn at acting in the movie the wrestler as the Ayatollah, which is certainly a movie I think I should watch since it's been out for 10 years. It's got that Bruce Springsteen song in it. I mean, what's not to like for me? So before the match, Smiley teases the big wiggle, you know, with them just kind of standing around and milling around. This is after Ernest Miller does his dances. And they don't show it. And I think the edict had been handed down from WCW that... You're going to clean things up. We are not going to be the World Wrestling Federation. We're not going to show this sort of raunchy stuff, even though the wiggle is certainly more harmless. I think it's subversive somewhat, but, you know, they weren't going to show it. And 
Scott Hudson is almost like directing, saying, all right, we got to get a beauty shot on this. And by that, he means a more of a close-up of it so you can't see him do the whole thing. Miller, as Norman is in the middle of all of his antics, he slaps him. And But there's a certain charming awkwardness to Norman Smiley, which is why the fans there in Ontario love him. And he fight uh, Miller, Miller actually ends up taking a powder on the floor after Smiley hits a spinning body slam. I always like moves where guys spin around, but you can do it safely. Not just like an airplane spin, but if you're doing a vertical suplex, if you can spin around, it kind of adds a little bit of a twist on the move. And you get a wrist lock by Ernest the Cat Miller as they're back in. And Hudson actually puts over... Ernest Cat Miller's legitimate credentials. Let's not sell the cat short. He is a three-time Indiana Schoolgirl Professional Karate Association Cruiserweight Champion, or something like that. Oh, that's what ISKA stands for. Not a huge Scott Hudson guy, but I did find that kind of amusing. And they go back and forth with the wrist lock on the mat. And Tanay says that the Starcade match between Goldberg and Nash, as they look back on it, will define their careers. <laughs> like, huh, no no kidding. Like, that would literally turn out to be an absolute fact. But the educated feet set the edge for the cat. And if you're wondering where they went to school, it was actually Savannah State. That was actually where he went to college. And he majored in electrical engineering. Not something I would have guessed from the cat. Smiley is chucked outside. He, oh, Sonny Ono hits a front kick on him. And it kind of made me wonder, is Sonny Ono related to Cassius Ono? I, I don't think they are because they don't really look alike at all. And also Cassius Ono being a white guy and not Asian at all. Back inside, Miller s- signals Ono up onto the apron. And then there's a reverse whip. And, of course, Miller collides with Ono. Roll up for two. I thought that that might have been the finish there. And Smiley then gets up and decks Sonny Ono, but the big standing sidekick as Norman Smiley turns around, scores the victory for Ernest Cat Miller here on WCW Saturday Night. Even though Norman's kind of arm was underneath the rope because as he's manhandling Sonny Ono on the apron, he lands and he's obviously very close to one of the corners, but... No, who cares? This is the DMC show. No, Nobody except for me is paying attention anyway. But Norman, he wouldn't go on to act in any movies, but he would become rather famous as the trainer of the women in the WWE Performance Center. He gets a lot of plaudits for his role in kind of building up that women's division in NXT between 2014 and 2016 and help build to that women's evolution the women's revolution whatever the hell it was called where stephanie mcmahon literally created women's wrestling out of whole cloth and then on the eighth day stephanie rested are you ready for a WCW Street Stampede, Sunday, April 11th, live on Direct Ticket. That is a pretty cool jingle for the pay-per-view, and I wonder to myself, why can't they all be like that? 
until I remember that because this is WCW, whoever came up with it was probably paid $145,000 and that this is probably the only time it ever aired on the C-Show, like two-thirds of the way through the program. Like that, that is how things would have operated. So in the back, Gene Okerlund, who's back in that locker room set again, and I was wondering why he didn't plug the hotline earlier, but here it is. He's now going to plug the WCW hotline. And I always wonder, what rumor is he going to talk about? Is he going to give any sort of hint? He refers to a love affair of some kind. I don't, I had, I can't even hearken a guess in April of 99 what he might be talking about. And he says the possible financial downfall of another wrestling organization. And I thought, well, he can't possibly mean the World Wrestling Federation, given that they, they've been perfectly fine now for well over a year. You couldn't possibly say, we're going to put the WWF out of business by April of 1999. So the two candidates there, just off the top of my head, are ECW, who still don't have their TNN deal, but they're going for it at this point. And they had been losing people left and right, Shane Douglas and... Other other guys, Bigelow the year before, Hardcore Hack, is it that odd fit in WCW? The other possibility I thought of is it could be referring to Memphis Power Pro Wrestling, which did go under later in 1999, but that was in October when you had the infamous Doug Gilbert shoot where he reveals that Brian Christopher is Jerry Lawler's son and all that sort of stuff. And of course, there is a third option, which is that Okerlund is just completely BSing everybody and totally making it up, which, all things considered, in the history of the WCW hotline, might be the one to actually go with. Please Venetians, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceVenation.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceVenation Wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the PlaceTV podcast, along with the main event, Survey Says, the Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Weekend Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcasts, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Cafe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBN Play, Sunday Groove, Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcast. You can find all these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes, and while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows, plus others available at PlaceVation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceVation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh ebooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar, Westwork, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and the History of Wrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceVation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. At some point in the past, I had said that I wouldn't do a WCW show after a certain point in time because I just can't remember everything. I, I can't retain 
anything that happened after a certain point. However, this next segment features one of those feuds that I actually do remember for whatever reason because it was not a top of the card feud. This between the Disco Inferno and Conan. And neither one of those guys particularly appealed to me in any sort of way. Yeah, I sort of have that weird obsession with the disco era based on that disco sucks thing that was carved into my desk in seventh grade, but that really doesn't have much to do with Disco Inferno. And I have to admit that Conan always kind of annoyed me back then with the whole, oh, dale, and all, all that stuff, because I, I didn't quite get it. And I, I, I don't know if I ever will. I kind of see Conan the same way I see Pitbull, where they're kind of ethnically ambiguous looking, but they're big stars, but they're big stars in a world that I'm not familiar with. Like Conan, huge star in Mexico, but Mexican wrestling, Lucha Libre, not exactly my cup of tea. And you got Pitbull, who's got a whole freaking channel on Sirius XM. I don't know what channel number it is. I think it's 13. It's bounced around to make room for other stuff, but it's always there. I can't believe that that guy has a permanent channel. But again, you know, there are certain things that I'm just not, you know, hip to, I guess. Well, Conan would often wear a plaid shirt, which La Cucaracha comes out wearing. And I'm, I'm fond of those kind of shirts as well. La Cucaracha, now the gag is that it's Disco Inferno under the mask, and everybody seems to be in on the joke, just like the old machines thing with Giant Machine back in the day. But I do like how Disco it happens to be wearing, rather than just a plain mask, he's wearing a Mil Mascaras mask, which is kind of funny that he has one of those. But even funnier than that, he has, as his translator, his Spanish-to-English translator, Juventud Guerrero, who happens to be... <laughs> Juvi is wearing a White Sox jersey, which was, uh, I think, a little bit more popular earlier in the 90s, when you had Dr. Dre and all those guys sporting the White Sox hat. So I don't know why Hoovy has got the White Sox jersey. Apparently, he must just really be a huge fan of Ron Kittle. I, I, I can't imagine what other reason it would be. First of all, he wants to say to Disco Inferno, it's not... Uh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. To La Cucaracha, it's not Disco Inferno! Uh-huh. Yeah, he got it right that time. Oh, yeah. La Cucaracha is not the Disco Inferno. In fact, he's a huge fan of Disco Inferno. Yeah, he's his biggest fan. He's the only one. And Disco Inferno videos. Videos? Videos. There's only one. And he stole Conan's. I beg to differ. That is not stolen. That is quality satire of something that was ripe for that sort of parody. And in fact, 
It was almost certainly the greatest thing that Disco Inferno ever did in WCW. Sure, that there's probably a debate there. Some people like his match with Dean Malenko. I think it was Bash at the Beach 96, where he's kind of unsure of himself, and he's trying to develop as a wrestler and take it seriously rather than dance. But who knows? Could it be the dance-offs with Alex Wright? No, I'm going to go with this music video because I loved it so much even back then. In 1999, I downloaded it onto my computer when downloading a video was kind of a big deal. That would be like a 20-minute endeavor to download a 20-second movie clip or something, you know, to that extent, I think. Now, they're doing a thing in the ring where, as you heard, La Cucaracha is whispering into Hoovy's ear, and then Hoovy is awkwardly translating what is being said and i say awkwardly because he might be high on pcp we don't know they do there was no drug test on that particular day although apparently wcw announced surprise drug tests the week after this on thunder and surprise surprise because they were testing for steroids scott steiner said he had a back injury and no showed on thunder so he wasn't tested therefore so after after it goes on a little too long, like an SNL skit, because you know if they'd maybe trimmed about forty five seconds off this, it it would have been a little bit better. Conan comes marching out. He's not wearing the normal plaid or anything. Instead, another sports jersey on this show. Am I forgetting just how popular all sports jerseys were in the nineties? But K Dog doesn't have a hockey jersey on because I don't think I don't think he has a team really to root for. Instead. He has on the jersey of a San Francisco 49ers wide receiver of the time. So you're probably like, oh, he's got a Jerry Rice jersey on. No, no, that would be too cliche for Conan. Oh, he must have a Terrell Owens jersey on. He was in his third or fourth year with the 49ers, right? No, not Terrell Owens either. He has on a J.J. Stokes 49ers jersey, number 83, which is incredibly random because he was never a great player and maybe had like one good year in the league and is most famous for being spit on by Bill Romanowski on Monday Night Football I think it was 97 or 98 where he spit through the helmet and he got slimed in the face so Conan grabs the mic and for for whatever reason, I don't know if it was out of love or whatever, he references lonely boy David Penzer in his remarks. And everybody knows that we all in here, except for David Penzer, are bowdy bowdy that Oh yeah. Believe me, Penzer is definitely bowdy bowdy and rowdy rowdy. I guess I'd have to listen to his podcast to figure out how true that actually is. I call him Lonely Boy because Tony Schiavone referred to him as such in a 1998 episode of Worldwide that I saw. And he was actually hired by Tony Schiavone in the mid-90s. And a note on Penzer is that he attended every single Nitro and every single Thunder. So that poor guy in the year 2000 <laughs> sat through like the entire WCW like. <laughs> ball of programming for the entire year so conan makes a gesture to his crotch because it's 1999 and you are legally required to do so and this leads to an impromptu match between la cucaracha and conan that is fairly brief and cucaracha hits a neck breaker it's 
very much like the one Disco Inferno would hear. You get a Disco Sucks chant from the crowd, because apparently they're white kids from the suburbs in 1979, <laughs> is what I think it might be. He gets some feet up in the corner. Disco Cucaracha charges in. Conan gets his feet up, and then a rolling through clothesline, which is one of the Conan moves that I kind of like. And then the Last Dance Cutter, which is effectively like an RKO, like a Stone Cold Stunner by Conan. And then he pulls the mask off, but you can see that it's Disco Inferno, but Juventude is quickly in to cover him up. And in fact, that is actually how the match would end on the pay-per-view at Spring Stampede the next night. Conan would hit Disco's own finisher on him to more or less end the feud and disco would move on to other dance related feuds down the road such as one with the aforementioned Ernest the Cat Miller they figure that's a natural rivalry one of them's into James Brown the other is into disco music you know who are you to say that WCW you know they would occasionally make sense kind of like the broken clock being right twice a day in the hear that song and the first thing you think of is sad animal commercials dogs who have been mistreated stuff like that and it doesn't make you feel good and you know what else doesn't make me feel good this next match because i don't like to see meng and the barbarian on opposite sides i like my faces of fear together and they show the clip from the previous week where they had had this match before it is meng teaming with jerry flynn against the Barbarian and Hugh Morris. So they're doing the rematch here on this edition of WCW Saturday Night as the feature bout. It's just that I don't want to see Meng and the Barbarian fighting each other. Why pair them up on the same side and have them go against Jerry Flynn and Hugh Morris? I mean, is anybody going to be disappointed by that? Yeah, the the counterpoint to this would be, well, don't you want to see Haku and Barbarian slug it out so we could find out who the best face of fear is? Well, maybe, but it still it still makes me sad at the end of the day. So you got Jerry Flynn on one side, and I got nothing more to say about Hugh Morris because, you know, he would be the Bill DeMott fired from the or deposed from the WWE Performance Center. Although, as it turns out, in retrospect, the guy that he mistreated the most was actually Enzo Amore. So it was somebody who may have had it coming. So perhaps they should re-examine that i'm sure that there was other bullying and i've said plenty on the meng and meng and the barbarian in the past jerry flynn good old lightning foot jerry flynn i always just remember him as the guy who was randomly on starcade 98 who was pretty much a jobber on all the shows and i'm thinking that is what separates wcw from all other promotions is Yes, Starcade may not have been promoted as their biggest show, but it was their flagship one because it had been around forever. You never saw the WWF putting Steve Lombardi in a match live. Hell, they wouldn't even put him in there against the Red Rooster. They did that on the Saturday Night's main event instead and put Heenan in there. You know why? Because Bobby Heenan is a star. It, to think about, okay, Starcade 98. 
Here's a list of people who are not on the card that Jerry Flynn was on. Sting, Lex Luger, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Raven. Now, there may have been some injuries that I'm not accounting for, but just think of the fact that Sting, who's in the main event at Starcade 97 a year later, is not on the card, but Jerry Flynn is. And Flynn did have a team with Fit Finley, who we saw in our opening contest, in New Japan Pro Wrestling. To me, he kind of resembles Steve Blackman a little bit in terms of his style. And it almost is kind of an example of the promotional differences between the WWF at that time and WCW. Steve Blackman was not a guy who had a lot of color to him. And I'm not talking about the fact that he would often just wear all black. He was a rather boring, dull guy who was into the, you know, the karate sort of stuff. Similar to Jerry Flynn, except Jerry Flynn never even amounted to that mid-card level that Steve Blackman was very entrenched in for much of the Attitude Era. Flynn's career actually started in Japan, where he became good pals with the future Horace Hogan. So kind of an interesting hookup there. And he'd eventually end up in WCW with Jimmy Hart, who is opposing him here as part of the first family later in 1999. But then he went out and did something rather stupid. He went out and got a DUI with Juventud Guerrera, which probably not the guy you should be hanging out with, I think, in, in those type of situations, given his history. And he became known as something, when you're a karate guy, sometimes you get labeled as the quote-unquote shoot guy because, oh, the, the kicks look real or whatever. So he ends up in a brief feud with Tank Abbott in January of 2000. And my final thought on Jerry Flynn is that I'm very glad that Jerry Flynn never ended up in the same place at the same time as Jerry Lynn. I feel like that would have been very confusing. Hudson congratulates Tanay on getting the gig on WCW Thunder alongside Larry Zbysko. That would be the commentary team for the next several months in 1999. If you go to the WCW Thunder Wikipedia page, somebody put together a detailed history of the various announced teams, which I certainly appreciate. I mean, I don't remember the team of Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Conan, which was one episode in December of 2000. So, oh, wait a minute. That would be why. You get the Stevie Ray era in 2000. Even Hooventude joins Hudson and Tanay for one episode in December of 1999. And Hooventude in Just Mike Tanay the week before that in December of 99. Those aren't on the network at this point, which I think has to do with the WWE's bias against Juventud Guerrera. I don't know if it's the, you know, naked and screaming in hallways or the PCP and all, all, all that stuff. I'm not sure entirely what it is. So, oh yeah, there's a match going on here. And it's a fight in the aisle. And I'm wondering, is this a tornado match? They didn't really do a good job explaining what the concept here is. As it turns out, it is a Falls Count Anywhere match, so it makes sense for them to be fighting on the outside. I just kind of wish that they had mentioned it. Hugh Morris headbutts Mang like a complete idiot. Oh, he didn't do his homework there, Jess! 
And back inside, uh, a stomp to the nuts by Meng. So a lot of scientific Greco-Roman holds here. Actually, when they're outside the ring, referee is Mickey J for this one, and he's he's not counting because. But as I said, I was very confused by this as I'm taking the notes because I did not know that this was a falls count anywhere match. Barbarian lifts Jerry Flynn up and crotches him on the guardrail outside the ring and then hits him over the back with a chair for good measure. If you notice early in this match, the Barbarian is paired off with Jerry Flynn and Mang is paired off with Hugh Morris. So maybe leaving a room for them to reunite? Who knows? So at this point is when I find out that it is a false count anywhere, no DQ, so de facto tornado tag, which is good because... I don't. I don't think I want to see a traditional tag match with these guys. Uh, quite frankly, it's difficult to explain what's going on in this match. It's not bad by any means. It's just there's there's a lot going on that I don't. I don't really necessarily know how to describe. Uh, it's it's just kind of a brawl between four big dudes. There is a cool move by Jerry Flynn who backdrops Hugh Morris into a powerbomb by the Barbarian. I hadn't seen that move before, but that's probably, again, just failing memory. Back outside, Jerry Flynn is sent into the steps, but back in the ring, Meng hits a standing dropkick. And, you know, the standing dropkick, always a favorite move of mine, but... For all that I've talked about Mang and his legendary toughness and all the stories told about him, he's one hell of an athlete. And that's kind of overshadowed by all the other stuff. For somebody his size, he really could move around quite well. And speaking of guys who could move around, you got Jimmy Hart, who decides to get into the ring as Mang is in the center, sneaks up behind him and jumps on his back which seems like the worst possible idea that Jimmy Hart has ever had in his entire life. But Hugh Morris hits a drop kick, but then Meng eventually gets to Jimmy Hart on the outside, and it seems like he's stalling a bit, like he's waiting for something to happen, and eventually the Barbarian does come over, and he gets Meng in a headlock, and he tries to do that move where he wants to put his head into the post that move that i complain about because it never works the guy always gets pushed off like i've never seen the top of a guy's head go into the post and sure enough that is what happens jerry flynn gets the cover and wins the match for his team so jerry flynn picking up a rare win for his team covering the barbarian at the end of the aisleway and they're chasing after jimmy hart meng is and gotta admit jimmy hart for a guy who is i think in his mid to late 50s in 1999 i want to say his birthday is early 1940s he has still got some speed now it's easy when you're 110 pounds because there's not so much wear and tear on the knees but he gets he actually does a nice magellan-esque route around the ring and has it planned so that when he runs out the other side, he's right by the aisleway, and he just sprints to the back. And not the greatest brawl I've ever seen in the world, but certainly not the worst thing you could get out of a 1999 WCW show. This was 
actually relatively pain-free. I'm surprised how well this went. Okerlund wraps the show by talking about the spring stampede and running down the card. And I have to say, I really appreciate them doing proper promotion of a pay-per-view actually having matches planned and following through with it actually having some semblance of an organization i i it's a shame that they couldn't have done that a little bit more and that is the wrap for wcw saturday night for april 10th 1999 and it is time for some braves baseball A lot of different podcasts dropping on PWO this week. The Military Industrial Suplex, a very meta episode talking about the origins of pro wrestling only. Stephen Graham and Stacey O'Loughlin discuss the May Young Classic first round that is ongoing in an episode of Who Booked This on the Kennel from Hell match in WWE around, I want to say that was 1999, but later in the year. My pals on the Our Vantage Point podcast aired the second part of their 100th episode this past week. Make sure you stay tuned to the very end for a special song I submitted to them, and they were kind enough to play it on the show. They go through the film Wrestling with Shadows, in which I think it was Joe made the joke about did the Hart Foundation ever actually wrestle the shadows in 1987 WWF? And now I'm obsessed with finding that out. So I'm going to be looking that up on my phone <laughs> after I'm done recording this. And on the wrestling podcast about nothing, they did an Ask Anything episode, kind of like those Reddit AMAs that you see. And it kind of led to a very predictable discussion of Seinfeld and casting that show using pro wrestlers. I do like the notion of Colt Cabana perhaps playing Jerry Seinfeld I said that Brian Malonis would be and this was on Twitter where I said this that he would be the Franklin Delano Romanowski of Seinfeld which he took as a fat joke but actually it was because he looks like the kind of guy that would enjoy settling a score by throwing a chunk of ice at somebody so do check all of those or some of those podcasts out. I know you have very limited time, and I appreciate you listening to me flap my gums for over 90 minutes. But I still have one very important piece of business to get to, and that is another edition of YouTube Comment Theater. Now, there's not as many comments on this video as I thought there would be. Maybe it's because it's been posted more recently. Maybe it's that it's WCW 1999 and people are prejudiced against it like I kind of was before I decided to do this show. As always, these are actual YouTube comments from presumably actual users and not Russian bots. Jason28W says, Why is this video only 47 minutes when the others are longer? I wanted to see it all, LOL. Well, as I've explained, Braves Baseball comes on at 7.05, so on this particular Saturday, it's going to be one-hour edition of WCW Saturday Night. Dingus Khan, yes, that's the actual name, says, Wonder who won that Diamondback Braves game? To which I replied myself, because I am so helpful, Arizona won 8-3, and I've already spent enough time talking about that game. So we move on. Damani Mitchell says, Hey, we have to find a way to save ourselves. They just added Saturday night to WWE Network. 
I think, because it says six months ago, so this video, I guess, isn't all that recent. There was the upload of WCW Saturday Nights from center stage from that 92 era into 93. Actually, I think it's just the first show of 1993. I recall from doing my research on the WCW Worldwide show that I did several weeks ago. Superman 1972 US says, Did they film WCW Saturday Night before Nitro or Thunder in the late 90s? So now we get the helpful side of the internet with MXT87 saying, I believe so. Well, thank you, MXT, but Scott Baye says, No, they filmed them on separate days, usually two shows at a time at smaller venues. And yes, as I said, this was taped in Kitchener, Ontario on the Tuesday after the Monday Nitro in Toronto. Thunder would probably be taped at a different time, probably on the Thursday with one live episode, and then they would tape one for the following week that would lead in to the Spring Stampede pay-per-view. That'll do it for YouTube Comet Theater. As I always say, a five-star review on iTunes Apple Music is always helpful because it provides what is known as social proof that people are listening to and enjoying this particular podcast. Now, for next week's show, I really need to get back to planning these in advance so I can kind of have an idea of where I'm going. And I have a lot of different things percolating for upcoming episodes. I have uh, an AWA episode again. I'm going to go back to that well. A lot of Jim Crockett promotions in the queue from the years 1985 through 88 that I certainly have to get to Ones where actual angles happened on the show or things of historical significance. Also found a Central States promotion show out of Kansas City that I kind of wanted to play next week for episode 85 because the Kansas City Royals won the World Series in 1985. But I, I don't know if I've really developed enough to say about some of the people on that show. I mean, yeah, there's Tom Boogaloo Shaft. But there, there are other guys, too, that I don't really have much of an opinion on. So for next week, I'm going to be going back to a show that I have not covered since all the way back in episode 13. And this would be WWF Shotgun Saturday Night from August 14th, 1999. That was a very notable week in the history of the World Wrestling Federation because that is where... Y2J, Chris Jericho made his debut with the countdown clock and all the hoo-ha that had went around that with everything leading up to it. We get an appearance from a fella by the name of Key, who I did not remember at all, hanging out with Draws and Prince Albert. So I think I'm going to have something to say about that. And our announce team for the show is Michael Cole and Michael Hayes. God, God bless them. They've, they've freed Doc Hendricks from that prison of whatever the hell a Doc Hendricks is supposed to be. So that is what I am planning on having next week. Once again, thank you so much for listening and tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.
there are some rumors that are rampant back in the locker room area. And I'll share that talk, that conversation with you tonight during my exclusive hotline report. 